I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Tonight's episode of Gravely Amusing is on the history of me, Dracula. I am sure you will find this episode more inviting. I join you, but I am meeting a friend for a drink. Of beer, of course. I never drink wine. So stay and listen to them, nerds of the night. What podcast they make. And now I leave you. Good night, dear listener. Tonight I trust you will be gravely amused. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Gravely Amusing, the only podcast that will make your grandma turn off her soap operas. Tonight's episode is part one of the King of Universal Monsters, arguably the most recognizable monster in history, the Batman to Frankenstein Superman, Dracula. Even if you know nothing of monsters and movies, it's very, very hard to find anyone that has never at least heard the name Dracula. He's a symbol of horror, of mystery, of violence, and of sex. He is the king of vampires, a pop culture icon. But in Bram Stoker's novel, he wrote a very different monster than a Hungarian nobleman saying, I want to suck your blood! Dracula is without a doubt the most dangerous monster. So let's get into the history of how he and the universal version came to be. So listen closely as I tell you the tale of vampires, beautiful women, and blood. <laughs> Abraham Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, was born on November 8, 1847, near Dublin, Ireland. He was the third of seven children, and his family was not crazy rich, but they weren't like dirt poor. They were a nice middle class. Stoker's childhood was a bit rough for him, though. He was struck by severe yet unexplained illness and was confined to bed during the early years of his childhood. Till he was about seven years old, he never knew what it was to stand upright. Now, I've researched very much to try to find out what this illness was and how at the age of seven he's just okay out of nowhere, uh, but I didn't find anything at this time. But, anywho, as a child, uh, being sick in bed, his mom would tell him scary stories which he fell in love with. 
Somehow, Bram grew to become a tall and healthy dude, though. He enrolled in Trinity College in Dublin in 1864, and he was an average student. But apparently, he was a heck of an athlete. Stoker joined the college's rugby team. He did long jump, gymnastics, trapeze. Uh, I guess he wanted to be Dick Grayson. And he also did boat riding. He won prizes for weightlifting and speed walking. He was crowned Dublin University's Athletic Sports Champion in 1867. Now, okay, hold on a second here. Let's pause. The man was an incredibly sick child, but at age seven, all of a sudden he, he's well and he can walk okay. He becomes immensely strong and he becomes an award-winning athlete. Think here. What other character or person do you know that was pretty weak as a kid, but as they've got older, they get very strong and almost superhuman? That's right, freaking Superman. Stoker was a dang Kryptonian. He was Super Stoker. <laughs> that sounds like Super Soaker. <laughs> Well, super stoker. Anywho, um, as a, after college, he gets a job as a magistrate, and he works in Dublin Castle, and eventually he writes his first book, which is dull, it sucks, and nobody cares about it. Uh, it was like a legal book or whatever. During his civil servant job, though, Stoker begins working uh, at a, as a, an unpaid theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. Basically, Stoker felt that people that were critics of theater, uh, they all sucked. They didn't know anything about theater. So he gives an offer to the male to say, hey, I will be your critic and I will do it for free. So he gets this job. Um, it was through that role, though, that Stoker meets uh, the thespian actor, the most famous Victorian actor of the time, Sir Henry Irving. It marks the start of one of the most important relationships in Stoker's life. <laughs> uh, Stoker writes, Soul had looked into soul. From that hour, we began a friendship as profound, as close, as lasting as can be between two men. Yeah. Um, Tyler, Dre, Trey, James, Brandon, Dave, all, all my close guy friends, I, yeah, I don't feel that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Henry Irving was impressed by Stoker's business mind and probably flattered by his ambition or admiration. My apologies. So Irving hired Stoker to work as a manager. And this job, this job was a lot. Stoker organized Irving's tours abroad. He co-hosted his dinner parties. He answered his letters. He oversaw all operations of his theater, the Lyceum, he he did he did he did a lot. Uh, Stoker did enjoy Moss' success as an author during his life. He is primarily known as Irving's right hand man. Upon Stoker's death in 1912, the New York Times attributed much of Irving's success to Stoker. So, no of his books were successful. He wrote some book about like a malevolent worm. Um, he, he wrote some weird stuff, but the only book that was successful 
is a book that took him seven years to write. Dracula. Stoker has said that the vision for his iconic bloodsucker came to him in a nightmare uh, after he ate too generous of a crab for his his dinner. My wife loves crab, so maybe I need to feed her more crab so she'll so start finishing the, the novels that she she has tried to write. Boost boost her uh, boost her self esteem. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, the author's notes, though, suggest that some elements of the plot uh, may have indeed originated, originated from Dream. It also, he also depended on a wider range of sources while preparing to write Dracula. He looked at books on legends and superstition, history texts, he even looked at travel logs. But he never visited Transylvania, the historic Romanian region where Dracula famously resides. Stoker spent years struggling with imposter syndrome while he was writing this book. According to biographer David J. Skull, he had second, even third thoughts about almost everything that he ever wrote. In the end, he wondered if Dracula would even be remembered. I can really relate to that. I have tried writing things. I have wrote some things, uh, a lot of things, but I never showed them to anyone. I have ideas left and right. I share them rarely. I I just feel that they're not good enough. So I totally understand Bram Stoker here. Uh, my writing teacher, Scott Snyder, who wrote uh, Batman in the New 52 area up until a few years ago. You know, when I talk to him, he's like, you know, just write. And, you know, he has a lot of faith in, in some ability of mine. But, uh, yeah, I don't. Even though Scott's a big deal and I should listen, I just, I don't have faith. So I, I I just understand Bram saying here. I mean, he probably had a lot of failed books that he wrote and he just like, well, what's, you know, why should I try with this? But, but, but thank God he, he, he kept going. In the summer of 1890, Bram enters a library in Whitby and he requests a specific title called The Accounts of Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia by William Wilkinson. Now, this wasn't a title found on the shelves or made available to the public. It wasn't put on display at all. The library didn't even make it known to anybody that they possessed the rare book. But it was a type of book only given to those who knew it existed and knew it was there. Patrons handled the title only after under the watchful eye of a, the head librarian. And it was returned to his resting place the moment that Bram was done with it. Stoker didn't read it cover to cover. Uh, he didn't really browse much. He opened it to a specific location in the book, made some notes in his journal, and then he returned it to the librarian. His next visit was the museum, where he looked over a series of maps and he pieced together a route beginning at the heart of London and ending upon a mountaintop deep in Romania. A latitude and longitude previously known in his journal and confirmed again to this very day. Then, after he left this museum, Bram then made his way to the harbor where he spoke to several members of the Royal Coast Guard. They provided details of a sailing, sailing vessel, the Dimitri, that ran around a few years earlier on the beach inside the protective harbor with only a handful of remaining crew alive. The ship, which originated in Varna, an Eastern European port, 
was carrying a mysterious cargo crates of earth. While investigating the damaged ship, rescue workers reported seeing a large black dog consistent with the myth of a beast known as the Barkeus. Um, I meant to look up the this uh, legend of this beast, but I forgot to, and I'm really sorry I let you down. But they saw this beast escape the hull of the ship, and the beast then ran up 199 steps from that uh, the dock into a graveyard of St. Mary's Church. So Stoker checks out this church, and he notices that an abbey is looming beside it, and that's on a cliff. So in his mind, he pictured this dark chamber at the top of a main tower. Uh, many years later, we would find out what he wrote in his journal. So, so meaning what he wrote in his journal from going to the library, from, from reading that book. He wrote Dracula. Dracula in Wallachian language means devil. Now, it seems four months earlier at a dinner, Bram Stoker's friend, Armis Wabadu, told him of the book and told him what to look for. And it was the final piece of his puzzle. Now, on another page of his notes, uh, the name Count Wampire uh, was scratched out and replaced with Dracula. So he... <laughs> He was going to name him Count Vampire, but he crossed it out. Uh, and, and now it made sense. He had the final piece of the puzzle that he needed for this. Now, for readers of the novel Dracula, that information I gave of Dracula ta- or uh, Bram taking steps, it kind of hits a little home. It sounds familiar. We we know that there's a graveyard in the book. We know there's an abbey. We know there's a dog. And of course, we know of a ship, but it was called the Demeter. Bram had found a blurted place between fact and fiction, and that put a smile on that Irishman's face. And it wasn't alcohol-related. So how about that? He was worried about presenting such a story as historical fact. Um, and his editor, Otto Klonman, was even more scared of it. He returned the manuscript with a word to Bram, simply, no. The editor went on to explain that London was recovering from horrible murders in Whitechapel area, and the killer was still on the loose. So they couldn't publish a story about running, uh, they couldn't publish a story without running the risk of creating panic. Changes would need to be made to the story. Factual elements would need to come out, or it wouldn't be published at all. It had to be published as fiction, or nothing at all. So, something else that you guys might not know. When Dracula was published on May 26, 1897, the first 100 pages of that book, the first 101 pages to be exact, that Bram wrote for this book were cut out. They're gone. No one knows where they are. Numerous alterations have been made to the text, and the epilogue have been shortened which changes Dracula's fate in the book and that of his castle. Tens of thousands of words are gone. But funny thing is, in the 1980s, 
the original Dracula manuscript was discovered in a barn in rural northwestern Pennsylvania. So northwestern Pennsylvania, that would be like near Erie. So uh, I grew up in western Pennsylvania in a town uh, outside of Pittsburgh called Greensburg. So this would be like two hours or so, two to three hours north of probably where I grew up. In some barn somewhere. No one know I couldn't find where what town it was in or anything. And uh my boy Jure, uh my my good friend Jure, he grew up that area as well. And yeah, we we don't know where. But that manuscript that somehow made it over the Atlantic is now owned by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. But it begins on page 102. It does not have those first 101 pages. So when you read the beginning of the book and Harker's on the train going to see Dracula, that's that's like halfway through the story or like a fourth through the story. So what was on those first 101 pages? Like what was considered too risque that had to be ripped out? If someone knows anything... <laughs> Please, please reach out to me. I, I got to know this. Um, I got to know. So anyway, kids, regardless uh, of that note, on May 18th, 1897, eight days before Dracula was published, an adaptation of the novel was staged at the Lincoln Theater, which Bram pretty much ran. And, and it was the one that, you know, Bram, Bram worked at, of course. This presentation was a mess. So all plays intended for public performance had to be submitted to the office for licensing. So Stoker quickly put together a script in order to retain dramatic rights to Dracula. So what that meant was him doing this play gave him the rights to, to everything. So if someone took his book and they liked it and they wanted to make a play about it, um, they would have to, without a shadow of a doubt, go to him for it. They wouldn't be able to go to the publisher and try to get the rights. They had to go to Bram. Copyrighted, performed, he owns it, period. So, no, he's a pretty smart guy. So, advertisements for this performance, which was more of a dramatic ring than a play, were put up just a half hour before the show began. So, he had he had such a huge audience, like awesome audience, uh, of two paying people. <laughs> Uh, the rest were probably homeless or whatever. Um, but he had the rights now. So it's not, not, it wasn't without a loss. But Dracula, the Count, would not appear on stage again until 1924 when the Irish actor Hamilton Dean premiered his dramatic version of Dracula, written with the permission of Stoker's widow. The show was a hit, became even more popular when it made its debut in America, featuring a script revision by John L. Balderston and starring Bella Lugosi as Dracula. That name might be familiar to you. Uh, Stoker, St Stoker's gothic tale, which is sold moderately after its release as a novel, had become a pop culture phenomenon. And some other notes here of him meeting... Uh, I'm sorry. I have some other notes here of him meeting Mark Wayne and uh, Sir Arthur Quinn Doyle, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I have some of that, but it's it's me. You know, I like just just know that he knows him or he did know him. Uh, look that up if you wish. Uh, you might enjoy it. 
one thing I did find somewhat funny, though, is he had a huge man crush on Walt Whitman, and Walt Whitman appreciated it. So uh, it's kind of weird. Look, look that up, too. So how did Bram Stoker's life end? Well, Bram faced financial difficulties at the end of his life, which seems to be what all the cool authors do. They get poor or they get sick uh, or both. Both is good. Both is fun. So Super Stoker eventually suffered from uh, kryptonite poisoning. It gave him some kidney disease. And in 1906, he had a stroke that left him with vision problems. Now, his boy, Henry Irving, had died the previous year, and with his long-term employer gone, Stoker turned to various other sources of money. He had some odd jobs, he wrote more, but his health uh, eventually uh, greatly declined. He died on April 20th, 1912, at the age of 64. Now, some say he died of syphilis, so I bet he wished he went to Vegas, because you know what happens in Vegas, it stays in Vegas. Okay, yeah, I know that's that's a bad joke. It's it's old. I know. Uh, yeah, whatever. You know, just you know, whatever. But that's the story of Bram Stoker. So I guess only three things live forever: vampires, words, and VD. Now, before we get into the book here, I want you listeners to know that there's nowhere in Stoker's notes for Dracula. Uh, where he writes anything about Vlad the Impaler. That is a common thought for sure, considering the area the novel takes place, the name Draculans, you know, so on and so forth. But in the 90s, Francis Ford Coppola and his Bram Stoker's Dracula, which really should be Coppola's Dracula, uh, is most def- definitely based on Vlad the Impaler. So when I get to that film, I will definitely talk Vlad, but um, Stoker didn't didn't base him on Vlad, but I'm led to believe that the book was inspired by Irish folklore, those real life events, and the novel that was also written the same night as Frankenstein, written by John Polidori, called The Vampire, spelled with a Y. Polidori wrote about that European nobleman that is actually a vampire, so Bram kind of was a copycat, kind of. You know, whatever. So what happens in this Dracula novel? Well, a lot of you have seen it on screen somewhere, and a lot of you might not have. So some of you might have no idea what happens really in the book. So you know how this goes. Find a comfy seat. Turn the lights out. Light a candle. And let Uncle Brian tell you the tale of Dracula. The Story of Dracula, Chapter 1. Our story begins on May 3rd. We meet our first protagonist of the story, Jonathan Harker. So Jonathan is a young newly engaged lawyer from London who has been traveling by train across Europe on the way to Count Dracula's estate, which is located somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains of Transylvania, which is modern-day Romania. 
Now, Harker has been sent by his boss to complete the final paperwork for a transfer of real estate, which the Count has recently purchased in England. And so far, uh, Harker is really liking this trip. So the whole purpose of taking this job is that he can get extra money and he can marry his fiance Mina. And they'll be better off. So he's doing this for her. Um, he cares about the money, but only really to take care of her. So as he's traveling on this ridiculous trip, this ridiculously long trip, he's impressed with Budapest. He's writing notes about what he likes to eat, about the scenery and this beauty, and he's, he's having a good time. So at sunset, Harker's train reaches Bistris, which is not far from the infamous Borgo Pass. So this town was actually named by Dracula uh, in in the uh, in the um, in the book. So the Borgo Pass is basically the area where Dracula's domain begins, if you will. So kind of like that. Now, Dracula's castle is not on any map whatsoever. And in this area of the Carpathians, it is where the birthplace of all superstition has been has been created. So that's a, another thing to think about. So Harker checks into the Golden Crone Hotel because Count Dracula told him to. But before he goes to bed, Harker reads a note of welcome from Count Dracula. Um, yeah. Well, actually, maybe he didn't spend the night there. Um, no. No, I think he did. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize. I messed up on my notes here. But he checks in this hotel. So, but he reads a note from Dracula that says, My friend... Welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. So I guess he does say tonight. My apologies. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one and that you enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend... Dracula. So he sounds like a real nice guy. Like he's welcoming. Hey, stay there. You'll be okay. He then records, uh, like I said earlier, John writes that the Carpathians is the birthplace of all superstition. So the Bargo Pass, uh, also noted earlier, is uh, goes into the entry to to Bukovina. I probably butchered the pronunciation of that. And the pass itself is the scene of great fires and centuries of massacres, famine, and disease. So Dracula's home, his main place, is full of famine, massacres, and disease. Now, Harker's arrival at Bistrius is on the eve of St. George's Day. Uh, in some interpretations of Dracula, they call it like Walpurgis Night. But basically, it's the night where all evil things in the world have full sway. So it would be like the eve of Halloween. Like all evil has control this very this very night. So at first, Hawk Harker is unconcerned about these local superstitions. 
But when he witnesses all these Hungarian peasants t- whispering vampire and all this stuff, um, and this old peasant woman comes to him and is very scared for his safety, he gives her, or she gives him a gift of a rosary to ward off evil spirits. Harker then begins to become a little uneasy at this time uh, as he sets out for the Burgo Pass. Dracula's carriage will meet him at midnight on the eve of St. George's Day. And the morning of the departure, a crowd of peasants gather around the coach, muttering vampire and making cross symbols with their fingers. Uh, it's supposed to be a sign of good journey and to be safe. But, you know, I th- think it's more like, you know, hey, you're going to face a vampire, you moron. So John sets off here. Uh, in the country, he sees a bunch of peasants as a, the cash doses by. They all kneel and make the cross uh, over their chests. And Harker notes that the beautiful scenery that he was looking at around Budapest is turning into like doom and gloom. And the scenery changes very sad. And as evening arrives, a snow seems to be falling in the area, a very light snow. Harker asks the coachman to just walk the rest of the way, but his request is denied. Foot travel is impossible because of the large number of fierce wild dogs in the woods. Meanwhile, the driver lashes horse onward ever faster and faster until the coach finally enters the board of pass. The first coach drops him off and rushes away as fast as possible. A new horse-drawn carriage driver comes up, and the driver instructs Harker that he'll take him to Count Dracula. So uh, it must be noted that this driver is Dracula. So... Uh, sometimes it's not always clear, but it, it is Dracula. So once inside the tacky tea, Harker collapses because he starts feeling nauseous. And when he comes to, he glances at his watch and he notices that that's midnight. Wolves begin to gather from all sides as snow begins to fall even more. Harker falls asleep again, and when he awakes, the carriage is stopped and the driver is gone. A ring of wolves with white teeth and long red tongues surround Harker. He feels a sort of perilous, perilousness of fear. The ring of terror is unbearable. He shouts and beats on the side of the carriage, but no one is around. All of a sudden, the driver reappears, signals to the wolves to leave, and drives onward to the courtyard of Castle Dracula. So, another thing that happens during this ride, too, and I think... The only movie that shows it is uh, Coppola's, you know, Dracula. And but there's these blue flames that are in the distance during the the ride. And in my notes here, uh, I think I put a note about it. Uh, yeah. So the coachman is collecting gold at these blue flames. So basically, um, at these blue flames, I think the gypsy people set these flames and they are to basically stop the wolves from attacking the coach. And it's also where Dracula like collects gold or gives gold to the gypsies. So it's, it's, it's something like that. I probably got it wrong. 
but in in Coppola's Dracula, this is kind of the blue flame symbolizes like as soon as you pass a blue flame, you are in Castle Dracula, and it almost is like a force field around the castle. Uh, it's 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 pretty interesting. So uh, that ends chapter one. Chapter two here, Dracula's castle is basically your stereotypical castle from horror movies. It's got big doors. It's got big chains. It's dirty. It's, it's, it's got uh, cobwebs everywhere. Spiders, you know, bats flying outside, but parts of the castle are just gorgeous and historic and full of gold and stuff. But so, so it's kind of like that. So, but it's also described by John as a bit of a nightmare. So then we get the first description of what Dracula actually looks like. So Dracula is a very old man, tall and thin. So he appears extremely old in the book. I mean, he's got hairs on his palm. The man looks like death. He is tall and thin, and he is completely clean shaven except for a long white Victorian mustache. He is dressed all in black. And John writes, not a single speck of color is on his person. So there is no red cape. Um, So finally, they come to a room, uh, which is a table that's laid for dinner. So this this is where the the book really, really is formed. This this is the best part of the book with John at this castle. So it kind of comes to a room in which the table is laid for dinner uh, it's set beside a roaring fire. The Count's greeting is very warm, and Harker forgets his fears and gives Dracula the details of the real estate transfer. So Dracula explains, at present, because he has arthritis, he would not be able to make the journey to England himself, but that one of his trusted servants will accompany Harker back to London. So after supper, Harker enjoys a cigar. Dracula doesn't smoke. And he studies Dracula from top to bottom. So Dracula's eyebrows seem to touch. He looks hairy. He looks rough. His mouth is thick and white. And it covers sharp white teeth, which protrude over his lips. So he, so this Dracula does have fangs. Um, they're, like, they're coming over the lips. His ears are pale and pointed. And his cheeks are firm but extremely thin. His breath is is just rank. He is like death. So I imagine that he looks like a bit like Max Shrek looked in Nosferatu, but probably a combination between that and uh, and Gary Oldman's Dracula, like a, a, a Frank, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, looks a bit like that, kind of a mixture. Uh, but very old man. That's that's very important. So the two men retire, and Harker records a final entry for the day. I think strange things which I dare not confess to my own soul. God help me, for only the sake of those dear to me. Harker is starting to feel uncomfortable. As Harker explores the Count's castle the next morning, he notices a number of unusual things. A meal is always prepared for him, and it's ready. No servant is seen anywhere. The table service uh, or the table is made of gold. 
The curtains and upholstery are made of costly fabrics. They seem centuries old, and nowhere in the house is a mirror. Now, Harker at last discovers a vast library, and Dracula appears out of nowhere. Dracula tells Harker they may go anywhere he wishes in the castle, except where the doors are locked. Then he changes the subject and reveals that he greatly fears his proposed journey to England. So, Dracula is talking fairly well in English, though. But he feels that his mastery of English is insufficient. He has grown so accustomed to being a master in his own land that he dreads going to England and suddenly being a nobody. For that reason, he wants Harker to remain in the castle as long as possible in order to perfect Dracula's English pronunciation and kind of like remove his accent. Harker immediately agrees to do so. Now, before anyone says or thinks anything, he can't check with Mina. He, he doesn't have a cell phone. He can't text her. He can't send an email. Like, he has to give an answer. So he probably just, like, said yes and then, like, sent a letter to Mina. Like, he is stuck in Transylvania. Um, so they talk far, they talk further into the night and, and like, they're just BSing. So something I got to point out here, Dracula wants to learn from Jonathan because he doesn't want to stand out in England. So important characteristic and personality trait of Dracula is he must be in control of the whole entire situation. So if he goes if he goes to England and people notice his accents or he stands out in any way, it's going to ruin it'll ruin him and what he's trying to do because people will remember do with an accent. People will remember someone that stands out. So he wants to blend in completely so you know he can feed off people for quite some time, never gets noticed, never gets suspected. Dracula is very scared of this. He he must control the situation. So you, you got to know that. So their conversation through the night turns to England. And while it's evident that the Count is concerned that he shall, for the most part, be alone in his new surroundings, he is immensely pleased by the description of, of the abbey he's going to buy in England. Uh, it's surrounded by high walls made of heavy stone, and it's in need of repair, but contains massive old iron gates. It is surrounded by dense trees, and the only building on the nearby vicinity is a private lunatic asylum. Dracula says, I love the shade and the shadow. <clears throat> Dracula goes on and says, I'm no longer young, and in my heart, through years of mourning over the dead, it is not attuned to mirth. The two men talk through the night, and Dracula requests from Harker something very strange. He asks him to write three letters. Jonathan writes about their request that Dracula wants him to um, write a letter that says that his work is nearly done and that should, he should start for home within a few days. Uh, he wants him to write another letter that says that he's starting to leave on the next morning and a third that says that he left the castle and he's arrived at Bistris. Very curious request. Like, why do you want me to write these letters well before they're going to happen? Very, very curious. So at the coming of dawn, uh, when the cock crows, Dracula leaps up excitedly, excuses himself from the conversation. So they talk all through the night. 
Harker feels nothing uh, is amiss. He's just like very curious, a little uncomfortable. Uh, but he does, he does definitely feels uneasy. He wishes that he never left for Transylvania. The next morning, Harker is shaving. Dracula again appears out of nowhere, and the voice startles him, and, he, and Harker cuts himself shaving. So this is where that scene comes from that Nosferatu uses, and eventually uh, the stage plays used as, as a paper cut and so on. Uh, two things happen when he cuts himself. Uh, Harker realizes that there's no reflection of Count Dracula in the mirror, and he notices when the Count sees fresh blood trickling from his chin, his eyes blaze up with demonic fury, and he lunges for Harker's throat. Harker grabs a crucifix that's around his neck, and Dracula's fury vanishes. Dracula immediately backs off from choking him. Uh, Dracula flings the shaving glass, though, into the courtyard below, shattering it to a thousand pieces. Dracula then vanishes out of nowhere, and Harker ponders about what the heck was that. He also wonders about the fact that he never sees Dracula eat or drink. Harker explores the castle further and concludes that the castle is prison, and he is its prisoner. Uh, after Harker realizes that he is a prisoner in Dracula's castle, he succumbs to panic and feels absolutely helpless. He believes that he might be going mad, but he recovers almost instantly and tries to think the, what he must do to escape and survive. More than anything else, Harker realizes that he will need all the hope he can muster and brains to escape. Harker is not a religious dude, so, so keep that in mind. But he's grateful for the crucifix that he has. It gives him comfort and strength. So sleep is impossible for him, despite the fact that he placed a crucifix over the top of the bed. He paces all through the night. He looks out of his window, and by accident, he sees Dracula on two separate occasions, emerge from his room on the floor below, and climbs out the window and slithers down the side of the castle like a lizard. And his cloak is spread out like great wings. It's shortly afterward that Harker records in his diary that he fears for his own sanity. He hopes that he doesn't go mad. His diary is his only solace. He turns to it for to collect his thoughts. Uh, one of Harker's favorite rooms in the castle is the one that he feels is probably a, was a woman's room. It's just really nice. Uh, one of the next nights in this very room, three women appear before Harker. Uh, whether or not this is a dream, he is not sure. Harker's horror is, however, quite real. And what concerns him the most is two of the women are dark, and both of them have vivid, glowing red eyes. The other woman is fair. They all have brilliant white teeth, and all of them cause a burning sexual desire within Harker. So it's almost like their eyes like hypnotize him, and he becomes very attracted to them. So unexplainably, Harker finds himself allowing the fair women to bend him, over him until they can fear uh, until he feels their breath on his neck. So he's just, he's like, he's, I mean, it's probably a mixture of two things. Probably the man, these women are hot. 
<laughs> and and a little bit of hypnosis, like absolute hypnosis. Um, so he closes his eyes, like he he's ready for these women to like, hey, what's up? But Dracula sweeps in and orders the women out. Before they go, though, Harker notices, and this is this this needs to be in every interpretation of Dracula so that you know how evil this dude is. Um, but you know, it's pretty controversial what I'm about to say. So before these women go, Harker notices that they grab a small bag with something living inside the bag with horror. Harker is sure that he hears a low wail like that of a smothered child. He faints. Harker awakens in his bed and thinks maybe it was just a dream. So Harker waits a little bit, and while he does so, he notices gypsies for driving wagons filled with large square empty boxes. Later, he hears the muffled sound of digging, and again, he sees the Count slither down the side of the castle, lizard style, wearing Harker's clothes and carrying the terrible bag of the child. A howling dog cries far below, and the horror overcomes Harker, and he's locked in this prison. He just sits down and cries. He then hears a woman below crying out for her child, uh, beating her breasts, tearing her hair, beating against the door. But within moments, a pack of wolves come upon her and eat her alive. So Dracula took this woman's baby, fed it and fed the baby to his brides, and then the woman came looking for the baby, and Dracula said, you know, you know, screw this woman and feeds her to wolves. That is a bad, bad man. Um so Dra- so Har- Harker starts thinking, so where the heck does Dracula go during the day? He only sees Dracula at night, he noticed. So therefore, he crawls out of his womb, room and descends uh, into the reaches of, of the castle. Um, he finds Dracula's room. Oh, I'm so sorry. So Jonathan crawls out the window and he climbs down the, uh, the, the castle and gets into Dracula's room where Dracula's been crawling out of. He notices that it's empty, but it seems... And it seems to be never used. Everything is covered with dust, including a great heap of gold in one corner. So seeing an open door, Harker follows the circular stairway down through a dark tunnel-like passage. With every step, he becomes more aware of an odor that smells like old earth and just dead bodies. Uh, He becomes to a vault. And in this vault below, Harker discovers 50 boxes and in one of those boxes, he finds Count Dracula, who is asleep, even though his eyes are open. So I wonder if during the day, like if I wondered if the daylight causes a coma like or trance like state in vampires or if Dracula just like automatically does this himself and puts himself in this trance. I, I'm not sure, but it's interesting because he's sleeping with his eyes open um, he looks terrifying and Harker's not sure what the hell to do right here. So on June 29th, 
uh, almost two months of being a prisoner, um, he feels the full extent of his terror. So he thinks if he had a gun, maybe he could kill the Count. But since this point, he believes the Count is completely and utterly supernatural. Bullets won't do anything. So on uh, this particular day, the Count appears. He bids Harker goodbye, assuring him that a carriage will take Jonathan to the Borgo Pass. And from there, he can return to England. But Harker opens up his door and sees the three brides licking her lips. So he throws himself on the floor, imploring heaven to save him until he can escape. So Dracula's like, yeah, you can go whenever you want, but really the brides are guarding Harker, so he does not escape. So um, Harker wakes early the next day. He scales down the wall, and once more he finds a count laid out in one of the large wooden boxes. So the count then looks like his youth has been restored. Like, but it's, and it's made clear how uh, on his lips of the count at this time are thick blotches of fresh blood, which trickle from the corner of his mouth and cover his chin. Dracula is gorged with blood like a leech. The thought of Harker assisting this monster to travel to England and basically kill everybody uh, overwhelms Harker. So he takes a shovel and he smacks Dracula in the head as hard as he can. This this creates a scar on Dracula's forehead. So I haven't seen any other interpretations that show this scar on Dracula's forehead. I mean, I haven't seen every interpretation, but I I've never seen it. So I think it would be cool if some interpretation would do that. And I think this also shows that Dracula can be hurt, but it seems like only in the daylight during this, this, uh, this time, like it puts Dracula in a very vulnerable comatose type state. So I wonder, um, so hearing voices, uh, Harker flees the room and he hears the boxes being lifted and, uh, the covers nail shut. He then looks out the window of his own room and sees the gypsies taking all the boxes uh, off to England. He knows that he is alone, he's a prisoner, and Dracula is off for England. So Harker is still determined to try to escape. So Harker knows that he has to escape, and he uh, at all costs he's going to find a way to figure to find find a way to get out. Now, after that, uh, chapter four, that's, this is kind of where the book just almost swells apart. It stops being as scary. But, you know, I'll let you decide. So, the rest of this book, um, it's important to note this book is not in chronological order. So, what I did when Tyler and I read it last year is I found... Um, a gentleman on on Substack, which uh, look up Substack. I highly recommend it. Um, some episodes of Greatly Amusing will, will be on that shortly. But he takes the book and he puts it in chronological order from May to November, where the book takes place. So instead of jumping around and stuff like that, I am going to try to speed this up 
because a lot of parts of this book uh, get very dry and it takes a lot to build up. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sum up. Okay. So Dracula has left. He's headed to England. Uh, John is still stuck in the castle. So uh, Harker does escape. He, I, if my notes serve me right, he jumps out of the window and uh, goes into the water. He climbs out and he ends up delirious in, in a Budapest hospital, which is okay because he liked Budapest. Uh, next couple chapters, Dracula takes a ship called the Demeter for England with boxes of the earth uh, from his castle. Uh, he then feeds on the crew one by one. You can see this in the uh, the movie uh, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which just came out in August. Uh, it does an okay job. It's it's okay. I highly recommend episode two of the Netflix uh, BBC series of Dracula to get a better seeing of this or interpretation. It's a lot better. Tyler came up with an idea years ago that pretty much the Voyage of the Demeter movie uh, stole. But uh, Tyler's idea was a little bit better. Basically, do the movie Alien, but put it on the Demeter ship. But uh, Dracula feeds on all these creatures, or not creatures, all the people. And he leaves the captain uh, tied to the steering wheel of the ship and and dead. Um, it's, you know, it's a creepy part of the book, but it's very long. And uh, yeah, it's a lot. So the ship crashes uh, into England Harbor and a dog is seen escaped and uh, goes around the town of Whitby. So also during this, the book shifts to Lucy and Mina. Mina is a fiance of Jonathan Harker. Her best friend is Lucy and Lucy is kind of a slut. So, <laughs> well, you know, take, take it how you want. So Lucy is barely 20 years old. She gets three marriage proposals around her, her birthday. She gets a proposal from Dr. John Stewart. Dr. John Stewart is the head of the nut house. Uh, she gets a proposal from Quincy Morris, who is from America. Uh, some interpretations and some of this writing uh, makes me think that he's actually uh, black, uh, which would be really cool. I like uh, representation and stories, um, but he's also from Texas, which is uh, which is pretty interesting. So, and then she gets a proposal from an Arthur Holmwood, who is like a lord, if you will. I think Arthur has the most money. So Lucy accepts Holmwood's uh, proposal because he 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 has money. <laughs> well, at least that's what I think. But, you know, uh, these three guys are actually friends. So um, so they remain friends, and they all want the same woman, which is uh, kind of interesting. You know, whatever. So also think about Lucy. She is a sleepwalker. So she will sometimes just get up and start walking around the courtyard of these mansions, and Mina has to go uh, find her. So... Uh, after the ship lands in England, uh, Dracula decides to stalk, to stalk Lucy. He finds Lucy because and he finds he knows of them because they go see the ship crash into the harbor 
and Dracula's a dog, sees these two women, and he's like, hey, well, Lucy, you know, may- maybe I'll be the fourth shooter. Um, so there is no story in this book whatsoever of Mina being Dracula's reincarnated wife. That doesn't happen. That's a thing that Coppola did. And, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula is supposed to be the most accurate version. Coppola just throw that in to make Dracula this romantic protagonist and you get sympathy for him. I think that's, you know, uh, I mean, it's an interesting story. Like, it's okay for another interpretation, but uh, Dracula's supposed to be evil. It's just the way it's supposed to be. So, anywho, Mina receives a letter uh, about Jonathan. Now, all this time, she thought Jonathan was okay because Dracula made him send those letters. Um, but they, she eventually gets a letter from the hospital in Budapest, and Mina leaves to go to Budapest to, to take care of Jonathan. Um, so that's could have been, well, it just conveniently helps Dracula out. So Mina's gone, Lucy's sleepwalking and runs into Dracula, Drac and, uh, Lucy becomes very ill. So Dr. Seward at this time talks to his old professor, Abraham Van Helsing, one of my favorite characters in literature. So Van Helsing is a very old guy. He knows like everything about everything. So he knows about folklore. He knows about monster history. He studies them. Um, Something else to know about him is um, Abraham has a wife. He has not divorced her. Um, They lost a child together. That would be the age of Quincy and John and Abraham around that age. So Abraham sees these boys as like his son that he lost because, cause that son died. Um, it caused his wife to go insane from losing the child. And uh, she is in the asylum and uh, Abraham refuses to divorce her because he loves her. That's his wife. So, um, Abraham's just a, just a good dude. He he's yeah he's a perfect adversary for Dracula. Um, so Abraham noted, understands what Lucy's condition is. Uh, he doesn't tell any of them what it what it is until he knows for dang sure. So he diagnoses her with acute blood loss. Uh, it's around this time that actually all these men one by one give. Um, give Lucy blood transfusions. So all these men love Lucy so much. They're trying to keep her alive and, uh, they keep, uh, giving her blood transfusions. uh, even Van Helsing. So Van Helsing places garlic around Lucy's room and makes her wear a necklace of garlic. But Lucy's mom, um, she removes the garlic and not understanding that they were called vampires. Uh, if Van Helsing would have just said that, hey, you know, don't remove him because of vampires, you know, he probably would have been deemed a nutcase. But, you know, whatever. So while Seward and Van Helsing are absent during uh, that night, uh, Lucy and her mother are terrified by a wolf. And Mrs. Uh, Western dies of a heart attack. Lucy dies shortly after that night. So... Also in the same night, uh, so important note here, Arthur is nowhere around Lucy at this time. His father is dying. Uh, 
And in the same day, he loses his wife, his father, uh, even though he gets all that money, and he uh, and Lucy's mom. So in like a 24 hour period, uh, he has to deal with all this. So um, after Lucy's burial, newspapers report children are being stalked in the night by the bluefer lady, as the children call them, which means a beautiful lady, but the kids can't say beautiful. They say bluefer. So Van Helsing uh, deduces that this is Lucy. So John, Abraham, Quincy, and Van Helsing go to Lucy's tomb. Um, Arthur finally shows up and, you know, buries his wife and they see that she is a vampire. They, they, uh, they stab her in the heart. Uh, Abraham actually does, I believe, because that was the woman he was going to marry. They behead her and they fill her mouth with garlic. Uh, at this time, Jonathan and Mina return and they join the team to fight Dracula. So also you need to know that, uh, that Dracula is very much in the background in the book. So, you know, Christopher Lee, the, that interpretation is, is probably more close to the book, um, except for, you know, how he looks. And univ- a universal Dracula, which we'll talk about in the next part of this podcast with Tyler, is very much a character in it. He's very much present, whereas in the book... He's like a Phantom Menace. He's he's in the background. He's taking people one by one. He's like a stalking serial killer. So that's something that is very important to uh, to put in your head. So, yeah. So Lucy's dead, and she was a blue for lady. So everybody decides to stay at Doctor Sue's asylum uh, as the men decide to hunt Dracula and come up with a plan. Uh, Van Helsing finally reveals this to the men that Dracula is a vampire and vampires can only rest on earth from their homeland. So they know that they're looking for boxes of dirt or some way that he can rest. So in the meantime, Dracula has a friend. It's Renfield. Remember Renfield? That's our boy Renfield. Renfield is, is a nutcase that uh, who eats bugs and lives in this insane asylum, and he wishes to absorb these bugs as bugs uh, life force. So after Dracula learns of the plot against him from you know because because Renfield is his inside man, uh, Renfield gives him entrance to the asylum. So you know how like vampires have to be granted entry. Redfield is there to give Dracula entry. So that's, that's how so Redfield's uh, Dracula's in. So anywho, while the, everybody's hunting for him, he secretly attacks Mina three times drinking her blood because ironically Redfield's uh, room is below Mina's in this nut house. So uh, Seward is living uh, on there and, you know, they're all staying at the nut house because, you know, that's what cool people do. So Dracula attacks Mina because he finds out that basically that's Jonathan and her are back. Uh, 
and Jonathan's going after him. And, you know, let's attack the one who he loves. So he drinks her blood, and each time he for uh he forces Mina to I'm so sorry. He drinks her blood each time, and then the final time he forces Mina to drink his blood. So she is cursed to become a vampire after her death, unless Dracula is killed. So this this adds in a little bit of mythology here that or it begins it that Dracula if Dracula is killed the head vampire then all other vampires made by him will come back to life so technically if they would have kept Lucy uh, as a vampire and not cut her head off and stabbed her in the chest then she would have became uh, turned back as human so, Mina's becoming a vampire. Uh, I think it, the book also adds that this creates a mental and somewhat psychic link between Mina and Dracula. So, uh, Dracula can see what Mina sees, and Mina can see what Dracula sees. So, um, so very interesting. As the men find Dracula's properties, though... Uh, they that the the properties that Dracula bought around England, they discover all these empty boxes with them. So they decide to their plan is to go to all these boxes, uh, these fifty boxes they brought, uh, and put we, uh, wafers of sacramental bread in them, which make them useless. So they're putting like holy water and bread in them. Dracula will not be able to find a place to rest. So their plan is to eliminate all the places he can sleep so that they can, you know, keep him in just one place. So they uh, attempt to trap Dracula and he sends rats on them and um, and he escapes. There is also during this time, I want to add that um, Renfield tries to protect Amina and from Dracula, and Dracula snaps Renfield's neck. So in the end, Renfield was trying to be a hero. So the whole team learned that Dracula is fleeing back to Transylvania with his last box of dirt, because the men have succeeded in ruining all the other hiding places. Um, so uh, Mina has a psychic leak to Dracula, as I mentioned, and Van Helsing decides to exploit this. Uh, via hypnosis to track Dracula's movements. Uh, guided by Mina, they pursue Dracula. So for these next couple chapters, it is just like cat and mouse game. It is very boring. It is, it's, it's just, it's not that good. So they meet up in the town of Galitz in Romania, and they split up into groups. Van Helsing and Mina go to Dracula's castle. And the professor destroys the vampire brides. It's a really the last kind of few chapters of this book are, are they're 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 not too bad. Um, so uh, I lost my notes here. I'm so sorry. Yes. So Van Helsing destroys the three brides. Parker and Arthur follow Dracula's boat on a river, and Quincy Morris and John Seward they are. Uh, 
ride horses parallel on the land to intercept this boat. So after Dracula's box is finally loaded into a wagon by the gypsies, the hunters converge and they attack it. So it's this big epic battle. So um, after taking down the gypsies, uh, it's it's like a big old battle in the book. It, I, I've never, I, I don't think it's ever been in live action as far as I know. Um, but in this fight, Jonathan Harker decapitates Dracula with a Kiri blade. And Quincy stabs Dracula in the heart. Uh, Quincy also is wounded in this fight by the gypsies. And he dies in the battle. But he's at peace with the knowledge to know that he saved Mina's life. Because as um, Harker decapitates Dracula and Quincy stabbed him in the heart, Dracula crumbles to dust and frees Mina from the vampiric curse. Uh, the book ends with Jonathan Harker and Mina seven years later, and you realize that they have a son, and they named the son Quincy, and the curse of Dracula is over. So, that is the book of Dracula. So, we know that Dracula is tall, thin, no color, white mustache he doesn't he gets younger as he feeds and um in the stage plays and universal dracula he he doesn't get younger he they change the name of certain characters they get rid of quincy um some of the some interpretations have made arthur uh lucy's brother uh, or Dr. Seward Mina's dad. Um, these They changed all these things, but there's no Vlad the Impaler in the book. There's no Mina's a reincarnated wife. It's just this man's evil, and he wanted a piece of London, and these group of guys stopped him. So uh, in the next episode, Tyler and I, uh, yeah, I'm bringing a guest, uh, my good pal Tyler uh, Patrick, who is the host of the Krypton Report, uh, DC Comics podcast. He's going to be joining us because he and I are very good friends, and he loves horror movies. So uh, he's like my right-hand man, as I'm probably his right-hand man, and uh, we'll talk about dracula and basically what makes a universal dracula so i'm excited for that episode that's gonna be really fun um so thank you for joining me i um i i recommend to you listeners to go and watch netflix dracula uh bbc it's written by uh steven moffat and mark gatkis i think i got i think yeah mark was the other one uh, if you don't know who they are, they wrote the Sherlock Holmes show or just Sherlock with Bennett Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. They wrote seasons. Uh, well, Steve Moffat wrote season six through eight. No, season six through 10 of Doctor Who. Uh, he introduced the Weeping Angels. Uh, he's Steve Moffat's awesome. Everything he does is awesome. So check that out. And uh, send me messages on on Twitter of what you think of Universal Dracula. 
who do you think is better? Do you think Chris Lee is better? Do you think Universal is better? Uh, you know, what do you think? I want to know what you think. So um, thank you for joining me during this uh, part one episode. I hope you learned something. I hope you have fun. And uh, thank you very much for being a listener. Gravely amusing. I hope that maybe you were horrified. I hope that maybe you were terrified. But I hope I at least left you gravely amused. Good night, everybody.